Welcome to Footnotes, created by Francis Garrett, a professor of Buddhist studies at the University of Toronto. Footnotes is a series of short lectures on research in the field. Each episode features an article or book chapter from an academic book. We aim to make topics in Buddhist studies research freely accessible to students and the public. This is Francis. Today I'm going to talk about an article called Sex and Sexuality in Buddhism, a Tetralemma, by Amy Langenberg, which was published in Religion Compass in 2015. Our music today is a piece called Like Pebbles in a Stream, and it was created by two Buddhist studies scholars and professors, Rory Lindsay and Fabio Rambelli. The piece consists of original music composed on the Sho and Gaku Biwa, which are two instruments used in the imperial court music of Japan. In this article, Dr. Amy Langenberg starts with the difference between sex and sexuality, where sex is about one's biology, and sexuality is a modern concept tied to particular socio-political circumstances. So if sexuality is tied to particular time and place and culture, how might it even make sense to talk about sexuality in Buddhism, which is a tradition that spans many centuries, cultures, and peoples? Some of you might know that many Buddhist monks and nuns are celibate. At least, according to the traditional rules for monks and nuns, called the Vinaya, they're not supposed to have sex. But the fact is that many Buddhist teachers and practitioners have a lot to say about sex and sexuality, and celibacy isn't the rule for most Buddhists throughout history. In addressing this issue, Amy Langenberg is going to use a classical Buddhist philosophical tool that we can call the Tetralemma, She's going to consider four logical possibilities. Is Buddhism sex-negative? Is it sex-positive? Is it both sex-negative and sex-positive? Or is it neither sex-negative nor sex-positive? I like this approach because exploring the issue from these various sides will allow us to reach some new insights without positing a single view definitively. So first, is Buddhism sex negative? Definitely there's a lot of negativity towards sex and sexuality in some aspects of Buddhist traditions. According to early Indian Buddhism, sensual desire is one of the three main causes of suffering, meaning that it's one of the main reasons that beings are stuck in the endless cycle of rebirth. The Buddha is said to have considered sexual desire especially dangerous, although sexual desire is just one of many kinds of dangerous forms of desire or greed. The main type of early Buddhist text in which there's a lot of sex negativity is the Vinaya, which is that group of texts that records the rules for monks and nuns. One of the most important rules is one that prohibits penetrative sex, and there are also pretty extensive discussions of what that means, and about related sexual acts like masturbation or other kinds of sexual contact with partners, human or non-human, same-sex, opposite-sex, or third-sex, living or dead. What about the next question in the Tetralemma? Is Buddhism sex-positive? Despite all the talk about extinguishing desire in Buddhism, 
As we saw with John Power's chapter, the Buddha himself was described as a pretty hot guy by some standards. Even bodhisattvas, who are those beings that emerge in later Indian Mahayana literature, who are almost Buddhas and basically like Buddhas, are described as physically attractive. Amy Langenberg writes in this article that bodhisattvas manifest an especially magnetic style of embodiment, compassionately aiding sentient beings through mere physical presence. They mobilize their own bodies for the purpose of sensually pleasing and attracting beings to the Dharma, healing beings, and even physically nourishing beings with their bodies. And later in Vajrayana Buddhism, which is also called Tantric Buddhism, sex and sexuality, either real or imagined, becomes a highly regarded yogic and ritual practice. And many highly regarded teachers and practitioners had sexual partners or consorts, as they are sometimes called. Some contemporary Buddhist traditions, like the Newar Buddhists of Nepal, continue this practice of non-celibacy, meaning that their ordained monks have wives and children. Some Tibetan and Japanese Buddhist traditions also have non-celibate high practitioners with either heterosexual or same-sex relationships. So as Buddhism traveled away from India and throughout Asia, practices of sex and attitudes toward sexuality were really transformed over time. Amy Langenberg's article next considers the possibility that Buddhism is neither sex-negative nor sex-positive. Here, she asks the question of whether the focus on sex and sexuality in tantric practice really means that Buddhist tantra is sex-positive, as sometimes people say. She explains how some tantric practices, at least as they're described in Indian Buddhist early tantric texts, require the consumption of sexual fluids after a sexual act, for example, and that these are considered highly powerful spiritual substances. There are also yogic practices that are said to involve sexual activity, and in this case, practitioners would be working with the components of the subtle body, the energies or winds that travel around the energy channels of the body during a complicated visualization practice. These are very elaborate and advanced yogic and meditative practices that can be done with or without a sexual partner. Given these practices, Amy Langenberg writes, Tantrism is clearly sex-positive in the sense that it places the structures, substances, processes, and experiences of at least heterosexual sex at the center of its vision of human spiritual potential. But Langenberg continues by saying that in some senses, these practices are also really sex-negative, because it's not really clear in many traditions, especially those who practice celibacy, how these practices could actually be done, and many of the practices might simply be imagined. Moreover, it's easy to assume that many examples of tantric sexuality, almost all of which are male-focused in writing in the literature that we know of, would have been and would continue to be highly exploitative of otherwise socially powerless women. And finally, Langenberg points out that Indian or Tibetan Buddhist tantrism could be called sex-negative because of its heteronormativity.
The last position of the tetralemma in this article is the possibility that Buddhism is neither sex-negative nor sex-positive. This section of the article is about how queerness is interacting with contemporary American Buddhism. Some American Buddhists, Langenberg says, point to a special resonance between the Buddhist doctrines of no-self or emptiness and the fluidity or in-betweenness of queer identities. For some communities, these Buddhist ideas are helping to decenter the role of sexuality and gender in identity politics. This section of the article has some really interesting examples of how, as Langenberg puts it, Buddhist doctrine can function as a means for moving sexuality away from its reigning position at the center of moral identity. I hope you can see by the conclusion of this article that there's really no single position on sex or sexuality in Buddhism, which really applies to anything you might want to say about Buddhism. Since, of course, there is no single fixed thing that Buddhism is for all times, places, and people. This episode of Footnotes was produced by Francis Garrett with sound editing by Jesse Witte. The Footnotes series was created at the University of Toronto in Canada with support from eCampus Ontario.